Hello and welcome back to another episode of Hashtag Only in LA. I am your host, Jody Bellavo, and today we have Ron Barbagallo as our special guest. Ron repairs and restores classic animation art. His client list includes Disney, Warner Brothers, and Hanna-Barbera, just to name a few. He is also an accomplished photographer and the creator of the Found in Los Angeles project. Welcome to the show, Ron. Thanks for having me. So we always like to start off the show with our guests telling us their L.A. story. How did you come to live in sunny L.A.? Well, you know, I guess not by my own design. Okay. Uh, I was working in New York and New Jersey, uh, uh, literally in my parents' attic. Uh, and uh, I was working very much in isolation. Uh, when I had given, I'm trying to remember the course of events here. Uh, I know the Museum of Modern Art played a role in this uh, because I had stumbled upon Mary Corliss. Okay. And she had spoken to somebody out in Los Angeles about what it was I did for a living. And who is Mary Corliss? Oh, Mary Corliss was the, you know, I believe, despite the fact that she did most of the work in that department, I think she was the assistant curator for film uh, at okay. the Museum of Modern Art at the time. And her husband is Richard Corliss, who's a, the film critic for Time Magazine. Oh, okay. So she made a call out to California for me, and one thing led to another where we had uh, a dinner at Top of the Sixes. Oh, uh, what's Top of the Sixes? Top of the Sixes is one of these sort of ostentatious uh, skyscraper restaurants that I would, you know, in, in like, I think in the 50s. Oh, like, okay. You know, not 1950s, but right. the, the streets. Oh, okay. You know, in what would have been, I think, 666 Fifth Avenue. Okay, so this is New York. She's yes. got you in this swanky restaurant. Exactly. Okay. With somebody from this studio. And they made this ostentatious promise to me that if I essentially did their job for them for a year, uh, and I moved myself west, that they would pay my relocation costs, and they would uh, promise that the studio would make it worth my while and give me a job. Okay, but... And that's not what happened. What oh. happened was I got literally conned on almost an hourly, daily basis to do the jobs of many people in that department for about a year and eight months. So you came out here? I came as far as Tucson, Arizona, because okay. I was aware that Kent Melton had a similar issue with this studio, where he got lured out of the Midwest to go to Los Angeles and then crashed and burned here when somebody oh, no. also offered him a job that all of a sudden wasn't ready for him when he got here. Okay. Uh, ironically, with Kent, he got rescued by Hanna-Barbera, right. and, and ironically for me, I got rescued by Hanna-Barbera. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, it was the exact same solution where Joe Barbera and his people had heard about me through Fred Seibert and David Barinholtz and Eric Coleman, who were all working at Hanna-Barbera at the okay. time, uh, when Thank it actually you. still was <laughs> making uh, animation be before Turner bought it. Okay. Um, and they kind of rescued me. Roger Mayer had purchased this whole collection of artwork from Preston Blair. So it was all this uh, Red Hot Riding Hood and Swing Shift Cinderella okay. artwork. And, uh, and I remember I have a letter actually where they hired one other art restorer and me to go about restoring I think it was five pieces each and then in a big assembly room they put the, the ten pieces side by side and Mr. Barbera came in and picked the five that he liked every single one of them was mine and then he had asked hey. like well, where is he um, he said well he's working at this other studio um, you know why is he not working with us and he says well cause he's fifty dollars more per restoration than, you know, the other guy. And Joe Barbera made a comment that he says, you know, for $50, I can't afford to look stupid. You know, right. go, go talk to the people he's working with and acquire him. And that's, and I ended up at Hanna-Barbera for, uh, you know, being paid there. Yeah. As opposed to ghost authoring somebody's tenure at a sure. library. Uh, hmm. 
Okay. You know. So you were in. So you you heard the story in the in the in the restaurant. You came as far as Tucson. Did you have a friend there? I had nobody uh, in Tucson. Can you just uh, ran out of money. Uh, <laughs> I didn't run out of money because I had the Hanna Barbera connection that came out of nowhere. They didn't come out of nowhere. What happened was is. Somebody in the incompetent department at this studio had hired Pete Comandini or asked Pete Comandini at YCM. And YCM is, was at the time the uh, film restoration lab that George Lucas insisted 20th Century Fox, Fox pay for okay. to restore Star Wars. So Pete and I had been talking oh, at the same... Oh, what year is this? Oh man, this is like 96. Okay. Um, Pete was done, almost done restoring Star Wars and working on Empire and Jedi, and we had been talking about the particulars, mostly like the the degradation that I was seeing within nitrates and within acetates and what the differences were between different years and different film stocks um, and how the paints reacted to it. Okay. Um, and he got talking with me, and then I reached this sort of like moment with him where I felt secure enough to actually tell him what happened. And he says, this happens at that studio all the time. Mm -hmm. And he's the one that lured me out. Like, he said, I want you to come out to California. I want you to meet with me. He showed me the entire uh, version of Star Wars before George Lucas monkeyed with it and added all those digital things. Wow. So I got to see the entire New Hope. Uh, unmolested. Unmolested. By, <laughs> but it's just, just the Pete Comandini version of it. And it was beautiful. Wow. You know, and he very much like Obi-Wan Kenobi talked like a young Luke Skywalker into traveling across the desert from Tucson to Burbank. And then he died, just like Obi-Wan Kenobi. So I didn't really have my mentor uh, alive to sort of mentor He's me through... He's supposed to mentor you from beyond. You know, and maybe in some ways <laughs> he has, because I think I've, I've ended up having a lot of the aggravation that would ultimately have killed him, but I've dealt with it very differently. I've, okay. kept, I've tried very hard to keep the nuttiness at a distance, despite how nutty it can be His out here. His yes. 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 So, where did you land when you first got to L.A.? Burbank, California. Oh, Burbank. <laughs> wow. The Park Point Apartments. Wow. You know, I had uh, everything stuffed in a 330 square foot apartment. I barely had enough money to do anything but my laundry. Okay. <laughs> I always say laundry quarters. Roll a nickel, a quarters? <laughs> yes, exactly. And I kept them right by the kitchen, you know. Uh, and then I got a phone call from somebody in Los Angeles that had a massive collection of animation art. And this was a little like the Joe Barbera thing where somebody who was just I guess a significant mensch is the way I would describe this guy. <laughs> uh, he, he basically created the job for me that I thought I was going to get at this studio. And that was a very long, a very satisfying, very, uh, you know, emotionally uh, reconnecting relationship for me in Los Angeles. It was the one glimmer of hope in what, what is sort of a struggle because the libraries in town and the archives in town, it's not what you think they are. Okay. You know, the press and the reality uh, can't be further apart. There are no gigantic budgets for fixing things. Everything is a publicity moment for the failed screenwriters or failed human resource reps that run these departments and then are neurotic as hell about anybody that might know something more than they do about the materials. And because I've been working so obsessively for almost 30 years, and because when I vendor out, I vendor up. Okay. You know, I, I, I followed David Bowie's sort of career choices, if you know what I mean. Where when no, Bowie, tell me more. Well, like when Bowie needed a guitar player on Let's Dance, he got Stevie Ray Vaughan. Okay, <laughs> right. He's the uh, best one. Right. You know, right. You need background vocals, you get Tina Turner. You get Luther Vandross for young <laughs> Americans. Uh, gotcha. You know, you don't screw around. So I got Michelle Derrick, uh, who at the time was... God, when I first started working with her, and this is well over 25 years ago, she was still at the Getty. 
So this is before her, her move And to who is she? I'm, I'm sorry, I don't... Oh, I, Michelle Derrick is probably the, the preeminent conservation scientist in the United States. Oh. You know, her credentials include the Uffizi, the Museum of Fine Arts Boston, the Getty. Wow. And she and I have been kind of singularly in... Uh, what we're, is in the dialogue, that reminds me very much of the sort of dialogue I would have had with my twin sister before I met Michelle, where it was just me and her, these plastics, these paints, this, like, gigantic uh, history of Disney... Uh, Plastics and their chemistry, paints and their chemistry, papers and their chemistry, and how these materials interact with each other mm -hmm. uh, production-wise and then in all the goofy things that are done post-production-wise, whether at the studio or in the public domain. And Michelle and I have built a gigantic body of work that reminds me very much of like Joseph Cornell. You know, he was an artist that died and in, in his mother's attic, I think they found this gigantic wealth of shadow boxes that he had created. Oh, wow. And I've been sitting on a iceberg of information about, and I mean top-notch qualified scientific information about the Disney paint formulas. And you'd be surprised how many people just want to like take advantage of this library I'm sure. You know, uh, I'm surprised well, that there's almost no civil or uh, uh, formal way of approaching me. It all seems to be, wouldn't it be great if you just gave us everything you did for free and we took credit for it? And it's <laughs> like, God, I've already made that mistake probably twice in my life already, and both times it's been a spectacular disaster. Why would I invite this a third time? Because uh -huh. it would be better for us. Uh -huh. I actually have an email from a large institution doing a project like this now where I, I'm asked to do that because it would be better for them. Wow, uh, man, everybody knows you got to create a win-win. <laughs> uh, you know what? Not done. so much out here. <laughs> Interesting. All right, so you landed in Burbank, and we're in Burbank now. So have you lived around in other neighborhoods in I have not. I think I went really? to the Park Point Apartments, which is, what, six or seven blocks from here? Okay. Uh, what is it, two blocks west and about four blocks south? to the shadow of Warner Brothers. Wow. Uh, and it helped me a lot with my work for Warner Brothers because I just walked across the street yeah, to work. Yeah, when I was um, parking, I was I was like, oh my gosh, he can walk to Warner Brothers and, and he can walk to Disney Channel and he yes. could walk to Disney Studios when it was in the Bob's tower. Big boy, absolutely. And he's right in the middle. I mean, is Hanna-Barbera around here too? <laughs> you know, it's not that far from here. It's actually a gym now, which is horrifying. I oh. actually tested that gym out like uh, recently. It's in LA Fitness. Oh. And I was in there for about 40 minutes and I went, damn, that staircase looks familiar. And oh, I, and wow. And then I thought, holy crap, they've converted the building I used to work in into a gym. Yeah, I know that they've converted Charlie Chaplin's studio into a public storage. <laughs> you know, and it literally is like one of those moments from like a, a dream you had where you're LA. wearing your pajamas, you know, and you're in, in high school. You know, yeah. what am I doing in my pajamas? Like, what yeah. am I doing in gym shorts in yeah. Hanna-Barbera? Yeah, you know? exactly. <laughs> I quit the gym and, jo and joined a different gym. So uh, is that why you live here? Just the proximity to the studio? It really was. I think at the time, uh, the crash and burn was very large for me. You know, I, I had had a twin sister that died when we were 28. In a lot of ways, I re, uh, replaced the, the intensity of the work dynamic I had with her with this work dynamic I had with Michelle Derrick. And uh, I guess the, the fact that nobody was willing to put any money into figuring out what was wrong with the Disney chemistry as far as the plastics and the uh, paints were going, except for me. You know, and, and I paid for all of the work that I hired Michelle to do myself out of my own pocket. And so when you're starting to do your restoration projects, like, are you doing actual physical cells? Or are you restoring the film? Or... 
you know, my mission with this stuff is to keep as much of the native material as humanly possible and to build into it or around it without interfering with it in any way. And if I do interfere with it in any way, I want to do it in such a way where it's completely documented uh, and it's reversible. So th those are my mm. goals is, you know, and it's a very, you know, it's funny. It's one thing the studios have such a huge amount of narcissism about it, as if there's not like a technique to this or an aesthetic you know everybody has a handwriting style when they sign their name sure you know and as you go about removing degradative particles even as much as simply I don't know some kind of like plasticizer that's built up or dust that's sort of accumulated in a softened bit of uh, plasticizer oil that's settled you know you start to create a vision of what the artwork used to look like and everyone is different about how they might be able to go this. I, I try to be invisible. I don't want you to see that I've been there at all. I want you mm -hmm. to, I want you to see what the art object might have looked like if it wasn't molested, because or, it, yeah, yes. or, or old and deteriorating, right. or right. And so you're fixing the um, the gels or the cells that the humans painted. Correct. Right. You're not fixing uh, or color correcting film. No, I'm not. Pete Comandini, okay. when he was alive, uh, had me, I think for his own purposes, uh, and we started with nitrate, uh, going back and forth with what the differences were between Disney nitrate, MGM nitrate, Warner Brothers nitrate. Oh, they all have their own formula? Well, honestly, the MGM and uh, Warner Brothers nitrates are the same. Uh, and nitrate is the material that they are painting on? Correct. Or? Okay. It's one of the oldest plastics. Okay. Uh, and it's kind of, kind of, I always consider it to be kind of a primitive plastic because it starts off as cotton wood. Uh, oh. So it's almost in its own way like chemically tortured paper. Oh my gosh. Um, and, and the early negatives are similar except for the fact that they have like a, a layers of pigment and uh, coatings on it that allow them to suspend pigment uh, okay. so that they can be projected and you can see a movie. Oh. And they also have, you know, much more holes. So the, you know, the alignment of the holes as they deteriorate and shrink and okay. twist because you know, the degradation of uh, cellulose nitrate and acetate is not uniform. Right. Uh, the, when it pulls and twists, it always pulls and twists inside itself, uh, but not any kind of regular way that can be gridded. Like, if you were to grid yeah. it off, you'd see that there's nothing metric about the way right. it Right. Well, it's plastic. Right. It's yeah. organic. Yeah. You know, so it's a miracle that the paint can actually travel along this ever-shrinking material. I'm sure. Wow. What, what's a typical life shelf for... <sighs> you know, we're almost at Shelf a point <laughs> with cellulose nitrate where it's reaching its uh, boiling point. You know, it's gotten so astonishingly brittle. Even, uh, and I feel I've had a unique front row seat to watch the degradation of cellulose nitrate from what really felt like tintype. You know, like, you know, the yeah. kind of ceilings in Hoboken, New Jersey that'll have uh, tin on the ceiling yes. in the square. You know, the uh, 25 years ago, cellulose nitrate really had the timbre the sound of one of those pieces of tin. Okay. Uh, now it's so astonishingly uh, devoid of plasticizers that uh, it's... I love that name. I kind of want that to be a band name. <laughs> plasticizers. Well, that I mean, <laughs> plasticizers is sort of like a generic name, like soda, I guess. Uh, it, what it is is it's camphor. Uh, okay. There's so little of it left, actually, in the cellulose nitrate that it's hard to actually gauge where it's missing. And it will let you know where it's missing because it starts to fracture and refracture on its own accord. It doesn't actually take much to trigger the fractures. Um, wow. And at some point in the near future, we're just going to have, uh, well, an explosion of fractures. Mm -hmm. You know, the time to 
have done something about repairing this artwork, would have been 15 years ago when everybody was so concerned about either raping my body of knowledge or destroying me because I wouldn't let them rape my body of knowledge. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, now we're at a point where it's so incredibly fragile that getting the paint media off the plastics is, uh, we don't have the window of time anymore. You know, it, it's a sad, especially yeah. for the Disney nitrates, they're thicker than the Warner Brothers nitrates and right. oddly enough, not as healthy. Uh, but once they are restored, I mean, can you frame them and they'll be preserved for... There is all like sorts of unique tricks that I do depending on what's wrong with these pieces. Okay. Uh, and in my archive, I've got like complete records about what I've had to do to hold some of the most twisted and degraded pieces of plastic. Like when they come in here, I get the Sistine Chapel train wrecks I'm or the sure. Last Supper train wrecks. I don't really get the gently discarded cells. Yeah. Um, and the steps that I have to go through to have to hold these things back together again so that they're displayable. And then I always tell people that with nitrate in particular, we're not at a point where I can make promises. Yeah. We're at a point where I can do what I can do. It goes yeah. back to their wall and it's the sign of the cross of the good Catholic. <laughs> and, I, and I hope that they treat them like children, you know, in the best possible sense of that word, and that they follow my instructions. Precious. You'd be surprised how defiant some clients can be and then how religiously, uh, compliant some uh, clients can be. Mm -hmm. It really depends on their ego, oddly enough. <laughs> Doesn't surprise me. So, I mean, just wanted to pause it, you know, for the audience that's listening, I mean, you can tell that Ron is extremely experienced, so he just doesn't just restore animation. You're actually the premier expert in America in animation I, I would animation say I twin with animation. Like, I think I am uniquely uh, gestated, uh, in a way, to... Uh, bond with these materials. How I, long have you been doing it? Since 1988. 1988. <laughs> that was a good year. Um, so, let's see. Oh, you're going to make me do math. Let's see. 27? 27 years. 26. 25. Almost 28. 28. Okay. I always say nearly 30 math. kind of sums it up. Yeah. Wow. And so, what initially got you into it? Like, how did, I mean, how does one fall into this career? You know, out of, like, complete tragedy. I don't know how else to put it, you know. Uh, I had a probably half-identical twin sister, is the best way to explain okay. it. Uh, you know, at the time, I wasn't particularly twin-obsessed. Sure, uh, it was just something there. It was you just something that happened at birth. I knew yes. she looked like me. I knew that, you know, we had blue-gray eyes when we were children, and at puberty, my eyes went from blue-gray to dark green, and then three weeks later, I did the same thing. Huh. In my early 20s, I got a birthmark or a beauty mark in the middle of my nose, and three weeks later, she got a beauty mark in the Weird. middle of her nose. And we did were, you guys have twin powers where you can read each other's thoughts? I felt her heart stop when she died. Oh, <laughs> goodness. <laughs> um, so I, I, I would have said no prior to her death, and then after her death, I'd have to admit yes. Uh, wow. You know, we had very similar interests, and we worked together. We went to college together. Right. Uh, and that death was just such a large experience. I can't uh, I can't really express how incredibly large I'm and sure. life-altering it was in every conceivable way that I just became work-obsessed afterwards. And I, I was working as an illustrator, doing very successful work for Tamla Janowitz and Isaac Asimov and Mary Higgins Clark. And I did the logo redesign for The Wizard of Oz oh, for its wow. uh, vinyl re or CD release back in the 80s. Okay. Um, and then I couldn't make art without her. And we had purchased a... So she was also an illustrator? She was a photographer. Oh, okay. And she'd worked in the area of abstract, uh, found images like I'm doing now. You know, I'm actually continuing. Oh, we're going to talk about that in a minute. 
<laughs> but I mean, we had purchased a white rabbit from uh, Alice in Wonderland with the pocket watch because she she loved pocket watches. I love the white rabbit. And uh, <laughs> he arrived damaged. Somebody had taken white out and used it to make a fill. Oh, his paws. where did you buy it? This is before eBay. So. Costa Mesa, California, Jerry Muller. Okay. <laughs> um, and done. <laughs> uh, who's no longer in business. Uh, but that's where it came from. $750. I paid $300. She paid $450. Oh, wow. Um, she always had more money than me. <laughs> uh, and uh, I found I couldn't really paint effectively without her. I guess perpetual validation is the best way to put it. Uh, when the cell arrived, it was damaged, and I, one thing that got me out of bed was the willingness to go to Yale and pull out pink chemistry books. I made some initial phone calls out to Los Angeles, and I found out the way people were painting things where they, pardon me, they were repairing things out here, is they were just simply making replicas. They were repainting them. Oh, and wow. I knew that there's no way you would do that at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. No way. So I said, you know, how hard can this be? Let me uh, go to Yale, pull out some pink chemistry books. Uh, let me go to like my public library and see what sort of resources they have. And I really became a little bit like Nick Nolte and Lorenzo's oil. I mean, sort of <laughs> manically obsessed with uh, determining at what humidity point does cell vinyl pop off cellulose acetate or cellulose nitrate. At what point does gouache pop off cellulose acetate or cellulose nitrate. Wow. You know, and I took every single color that art color or cartoon color made and I tested them uh, with gray 14 as a, uh, like a base color okay. that would be added as a local color. Okay. Um, and then I tested them as uh, just primary colors out of the tube. Uh, and I also tested them as just the medium itself. And I, like, temperature and humidity tortured these uh, little blocks that I had painted on MGM nitrate, Warner Brothers little acetate, Disney acetate, Disney nitrate. And I did a whole bunch of experiments like this until uh, Andy Warhol's estate was settled. And I got a call from somebody at Sotheby's, very nervous, which became kind of a recurring thing, uh -huh. is a call from somebody at Sotheby's who's nervous. Right. Because somebody famous died or somebody famous called them and they're n nervous about uh, what to do with Andy's cell. So I think the way things went down there, I don't recall Sotheby's, Sotheby's set it all up for me, uh, but the- How did they know about you? You, you know, it's, I I'm a success in spite of myself. I think the, you know, the, <laughs> my sister's death was so gigantic for me that I really never looked left or right of a pin. So, you know, uh, so just to rewind a second. So you bought the cell together with your sister and um, she had passed away after you purchased it. I, mean, I think the cell came in maybe ten days, three weeks after she died. And so it, you, the cell was delivered ten, a few days after she died. You got it. You noticed it was damaged. And you threw yourself into Absolutely. figuring out how to repair it. Yeah, I couldn't fix her, so I As fixed like the thing that she loved. Yeah, exactly. So homage to her or, or you know, something actionable that you could do. Uh, with, I guess, with her memory. And it kind of connected me to her, if you know what I mean. Yeah, like I would absolutely. say I'm, I'm essentially still fixing her cell. Like, it's been 27, Aww. 28 years, and I'm still, in some way or another, fixing her work. And so when you fixed the cell, what happened after that? It just kind of snowballed? You, you found you know, another cell I, I, and you no, fixed I, that? No, I went back to doing some illustration work. I'm sure, like, the Isaac Asimov thing happened after that, and the Mary Higgins Clark thing happened after that. When she died, I was working on Tama Janowitz's uh, A Cannibal in Manhattan for uh, Washington Square Press. Okay. Um, and then Penthouse Magazine happened after that. What happened at Penthouse? Somebody <laughs> I went to college with was an art director at Penthouse and brought me in to paint naked girls. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a good gig. It was a great job. Um, 
And you know what? I have to defend Penthouse because they paid on time. They right. were never horrible to deal with. Nobody there exploited my body of work or threatened to destroy me. Interesting. Uh, they were actually reasonable is the word I would use to describe them. Um, huh. But I found within three years of her death really uh, a, a lack of enjoyment and my hands would tremble when I was illustrating. So uh, I think without her perpetual validation, I gravitated more towards the repair work I was doing. And when Edith Rudman... Who's this? You know, Edith Rudman's one of these genius people, I guess is the best way to, to call her. Uh, she's kind of a hippie from the 60s that was selling animation art in colleges around the Midwest. And it morphed and twisted into really owning the largest wholesaler of Disney animation art uh, in the world. And it was wow. in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, which is what I always say about anybody is it doesn't matter what your gender or religion or where you live. Right. You know, no offense to Cedar Rapids, Iowa, but it's a little bizarre that the largest retailer for uh, Disney animation art wasn't in New York City or wasn't in know, Los Angeles or wasn't in Las Vegas. It was in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Because she collected it there. You know, she was, she was a little like me where she was so singularly minded about promoting this artwork and running this business that she... It was intoxicating to watch her progress. Okay. And Lori and I had bought a lot of artwork from her gallery, so she was aware of me and my twin sister and, and what I was doing as far as repairing the artwork. I even went out to visit her after Lori died because uh, it was something we were supposed to do together, so for me it was part of closure. Okay. Uh, and I think when I was out there I was showing her what I was doing with the repair work. And she started funneling all sorts of work to me, and then when she sold the company, the new owner was funneling work to me, and then the other galleries... I got jealous. The other retail and they, and so the Cricket Gallery and the Circle Gallery and all these other galleries and Christie's started the auction house in New York right. started like sending work to me and okay and then then, then the world then the Warhol world, world okay. thing happened and, and that was a rags to riches event for so me. So let's talk about the Warhol thing. So what was his sell? You know, you would think Andy Warhol would have the most magnanimous Pinocchio on a full master background, all key set up, and actually no. Andy Warhol had Timothy the Mouse, full-figured, all Timothy by... Timothy the Mouse is from Dumbo. He's from Dumbo. He's okay. the sort of very Lower East... And it's funny, because, like, I have a Lower East Side accent, and he's also, you know, got a Lower East Side okay. accent. Uh, and Andy owned a very humble, very inexpensive uh, Dumbo cell that I think by itself wouldn't have had the value if it weren't Andy's cell. Sure. And so, Andy, without, he, without being owned by Andy, how, what do you think? Oh, jeez. In that economy, like back in, this was early 90s when I worked with uh, that piece. Like I, like I had told you earlier, I wasn't even keeping records yeah. except by hand. Like right. I'm sure Warhol's work. What about in today's market? If it wasn't no, owned by hand. Boy, if it was, see, that's the whole thing. Owned by hand, it's a lot of money. Right, but uh, without the Andy piece. My guess is about $1,000, $1,200. Okay. Because it's, it's Timothy the Mouse. It's right. not the crows. Right. Uh, but it's crows adjacent. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> it's not Dumbo. Lower East Side yes. crows. <laughs> Solar power is all about forward thinking. But when you generate clean energy from the sun, your meter actually runs backwards. The cost? No money down. Zero dollars to go solar. The savings? They start from day one. Save every month. Solar City is the easiest way to move forward with solar energy. Find out how much Solar City can help you save. Check out their savings calculator at gosolar.onlyin.la. And when you sign up through our referral link, your first month of solar is free. So help yourself, help the show, and help the planet. 
visit gosolar.onlyin.la. Um, okay, and so so you got Timothy and the Mouse. He's in bad shape. He was a train wreck. Yep, and so you... What Cleaned did you him do up, to him? Fixed him. Uh, you so know, you showed me the pictures, and we'll have to put it on the blog, but I noticed that you know he's missing paint from his hat. He's got some kind of marbling-looking thing in his ear and on his jacket. So what, 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 what was all that? Timothy was uh, laminated on the front and back side. Uh, his, his acetate was diacetate, and it was actually... Uh, already quite far gone and that the fact that there were so many sheets of acetate that had been chemically melded through this lamination process that you know it's conflicting uh, whose records uh, there are records that show that some of the lamination was done at Disney there's records that show some of the lamination were done and what's la- is lamination something they do after they shoot the film it is it's a post-production technique that the Disney company relied on sadly uh, on two separate occasions you know back in the 80s which would be like that Toby from Great Mouse Detective and mm-hmm. the Oh yes, the 80s was kind of a dark time for the studio. Oh, I hate that lamination project, uh, that product. Uh, it's it's called MacTac, uh, and it's really just a piece of scotch tape. You know, oh. the the <laughs> process that was used in the 40s uh, and possibly late 30s. I have to check my records on when I see the earliest signs of it. Used a chemical solvent that that tried to bond. Uh, the acetate layers as well, they were like. And in the on. early days, and we'll get back to Andy, but in the early days, um, they didn't really think of this as art, right? They would just throw... I mean, I think I heard a story of when the studio was moving out of one building into another, and they went into the basement of one of and the animation buildings. There's a great buildings. story about how this started, because it really is out of clumsiness, and, and uh, I'd say greed is, is how all this started, in that... Kay Kamen was this merchandising genius, the Mickey Mouse Ingersoll watch guy. Oh, yeah. Uh, in he Is that the 60s? Oh, no, no. Late, mid to late 30s. Oh, okay. Uh, wow. All right. Uh, he, he had a deal with Fuller Sticks and Bar, which was a department store in the Midwest. Uh, and he had taken some dwarves and tried to create, like, little square, little, like, miniature things from Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs and a couple of the other shorts, and he put them in essentially what he considered to be decorations for children's furniture, like their bedrooms. Okay. And when he did this, he didn't really quite have the full authority. You know, I think somehow... I don't know the full story, exactly. (laughs) You know, what was happening at the same exact time was, earlier, uh, a woman named Helen Nervevig, who was in the ink and paint department, was sort of taking cells. Uh, She didn't quite have the authority to take, but she took cells out of the morgue, and okay. she would use them to make greeting cards, because it was still depression-era mentality, and she was cutting up these I cells. I would love one of those I greeting know, I'd cards. I'd love to see one of her greeting cards, and I know her whole family. Uh, I mean, that was something that, after the Warhol thing, I got to know oh uh, God, Helen's entire family. So she's making greeting cards out of Snow White cells? Absolutely. Oh my Absolutely. God. Like, and with no license to do this, no like, like oh knowledge God. on what to do, so she's because she had an Art Nouveau uh, background that involved using airbrush with friskets, she really thought nothing of cutting these things up like color form, whacking all sorts of sealants on the back of them, and then gluing them down. And at the time, because I think Walt Disney was a little on the cheap side, he yeah. actually enlisted Helen's father to repair his watches. Okay. Uh, so when one time when Helen was bringing the watches, uh, a fixed watch or picking up a damaged watch from Walt, uh, I think she wanted to be patted on the head, so she showed Walt one of these greeting cards. And uh, Walt had just had a meeting with Guthrie Cravassier from San Francisco who wanted to distribute Disney art 
worldwide. Oh my god. And Walt just quickly put two and two together um, and gave Guthrie the contract, knew that Helen was already doing this stuff kind of illegally or covertly. Oh, he was aware. Yes. It wasn't pissed. No, it wasn't pissed. Okay. Uh, like, to him, it, the cells he, were a means to an end. It got things on the screen. Yeah. I mean, the reality was, at that time period... Yeah, they just didn't think about it. No, they even had, it like, an inherent painter, like, on the side of the camera stand trying to quickly fix things when they would fall apart as they were just shooting things to yeah. get stuff, uh, you know, done. Yeah, uh, it was just an artifact of production. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. You know, so, so this was a way of him making a little extra money and making it all Guthrie uh, Gravasi's responsibility, but he was unaware that Kay came in and already kind of usurped him. So uh, there is a little bit of drama to shut down the Fuller Sticks and Bar stuff, uh, and every once in a while you see one of those cells surface. They're kind of on the rare side. They're not as rare as one of uh, Helen's cards, which okay. I've never seen. And, you know, I've got to ask. Oh, I'm still in touch with one. Helen's daughter. I want to see one. Does she have one? You know, i got to ask her. <laughs> I would love to see that. Okay. So, okay, so let's get back to Andy. So you get the call and you're fixing Andy's uh, Timothy the Mouse. It's laminated because um, now people have gotten hip to wanting to turn these into art, but it was laminated poorly. Well, the lamination thing at Disney is Helen actually put a huge effort to trying to put like nice backgrounds that she handmade in her department and, and the department she had with. Uh, oh, that weren't in the movie. It was after right. the fact. You know, She's and like, I think Walt look looked here. at the budget for her expenditures on creating these backgrounds, and at one point said, "We got to simplify this." Mm -hmm. You know, and I know she reported to Joe Grant, so maybe Joe Grant is the one that said we have to simplify this. So that's when the lamination process comes in, okay. where it's just a quick, sort of dumb commercial way of sealing it, so that it's somebody else's problem. Okay. And when it became Andy's problem, what had happened was is the gases from the uh, acetate and acetate layers um, and the gouache paint layer started to build up. You started to see bubbling. You know, the, the, yeah, the, and so that's that marbly look that you yeah, can see through no the air. There's no there's uh, no there's no way for the paint layer to breathe. There's no way for the acetate to breathe because it's been trapped under oh, several layers of acetate. Okay. So you start to see all of this modeling. You know, a some of it's from the adhesive that invaded the uh, paint layer as it was being laminated. Mm -hmm. Some of it's from the heat because Disney paint is incredibly sensitive and the colors can be quite distorted. There was this whole project involving humidifying backgrounds at Disney uh, where they didn't really bother to do the research that doing that actually changes all the colors. Oh, no. <laughs> so let's flood it with water because it's an easy way to press like a shirt flat. Yeah. So it's also an easy way to flatten a background. Oh. It's also the stupid way to flatten a background. Sure. Um, okay. So back to Andy. <laughs> I know. We, we so many uh, splinters in this story, Sorry. but it's okay. But getting back to Andy, uh, his cell experienced an awful lot of what I call post-production degradation. Sure. And over the decades since An since it went from Disney to Andy's, actually this was from his, where he lived. Like whatever his brownstone or wherever Andy okay. lived, that's where this was from. All right. Um, personal home collection. Correct. Not in the factory. Not in the factory. This is his <laughs> Not in his interview office. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Um, okay, so you finished that. It turned out amazing. And what and happened? He, I got so neurotic about maybe not really having done my research in any kind of way except cowboy style and all sort of like bereavement style, I guess I would mm -hmm. call it, uh, that I, I decided I would find out if I was doing the right thing. So I naively called the Metropolitan Museum of Art. I asked to speak to somebody in their conservation department and they gave me Nora Kennedy. 
And Nora Kennedy is? She runs the photographic conservation wing for the Metropolitan Museum of Art. She also works at NYU wow. teaching one of the most ostentatious programs for art conservation in, in New York. Okay. Or actually anywhere, really. So um, you didn't get just the intern. No, I started you, at the you top got with the top. this. And Nora, Nora can be quite nurturing and also quite critical. Sure. Uh, I don't think either word could be underplayed okay. in regard to describing her. Uh, and because I had done so much work in regard to torturing the acetates and the paints right. uh, of my own accord, and I had such documentation, she arranged for me to speak at what she called a little talk. A little talk. And the little talk, which I had never seen a talk anywhere before, was at the National Gallery of Art. Because you're still in your mom's attic. I'm still in my mom's attic. I'm right. you know, 30, in my early, very early 30s. And the attic's in New York. Bayonne, New Jersey, of okay. all oh, disgusting New places. Jersey, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, is that like a, just a short train ride into town? It is. It's about okay. eight miles from okay. Manhattan. So it's really very close to where we were baptized and conceived. Okay. Uh, and where we uh, were educated. I don't um, know New York or New Jersey very well. Uh, <laughs> it's Mott Street, basically. Okay. It's like lower, uh, now it's Chinatown, but it used to be Little Italy. Okay. You know, it's, it's Scorsese's Mean Street. So I always say it's funny what I do for a living because I grew up in such a nasty, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe there's something to that. You, had, you know. A balance. Yes, a balance. A yin and yang of sorts. <laughs> So, um, so you do the talk. I do the talk, and I'm not prepared for the size of the talk. And the what was the little talk? What little talk was a major international event of the National Gallery Shut of Art. <laughs> <laughs> and everybody else had very like conservative titles, like you know the the, the railroad photographs, 1820 or some such decade, right. 1880. You know, uh, Civil War photographs. And mine was Mickey Goofy. Mickey, Donald, Goofy, and Pluto, what's breaking up that old gang of mine? <gasps> and because I had a commercial art background, my talk was conceived like a commercial art production. Sure. Despite the IR spectra photography, the solubility tests, <laughs> and all the other like, like scientific data that I brought with right. me, and it was all very well paced out. And when I got done, I wasn't, I think the audience and I both weren't prepared for what happened, and I got inc incredibly nervous and shut down and ran away almost. As a matter of fact, uh, Debbie Hess Norris grabbed me by my collar or maybe my pants and just sort of prevented me from running up the stairs because uh, I just didn't want to deal with the cavalcade of... There so was a lot of anger. the talk and then everyone came forward? There was a lot of anger in the room because there was a sense of how dare this guy do this from uh, his mother's attic in Bayonne, New Jersey. You know, like, we've got master's degrees and we've got these college loan payments. Yeah, who the fuck is this, this guy? Who the fuck is this little <laughs> jackass from Bayonne, New Jersey? <laughs> <laughs> um, and then what I found is that everybody that was sort of at the top of their game, sure. like Bob Aitchison or, or Doug Nishimura at IPI, uh, and Michelle Derrick, that these people all sort of went, wait a minute though, look what the content is. Sure. Look how he's approaching this. Absolutely. If this was done in a program, he'd be everybody's wonderkin, so why are you crucifying him? Right. You know, and I'd already felt crucified enough by my sister's death, I really didn't need a whole bunch of like scientific colleagues like beat the shit yeah. out of me you know it's funny being I'm the sure that's very intimidating it really was you know on one hand they wanted every little bit of every little thing I've done for free and then on the other hand they wanted to beat the crap out of me while they were doing it so I said you know what I need to shut the doors down like I need to get back to work but what uh, but the you had some amazing thing happen after the talk too well yeah I mean literally heads of state and heads of industry called I mean I went home uh, you know I was making eight thousand dollars a year repairing Disney art because no one knew who I was and I was doing no advertising. Uh, and you're just doing this for home people? Uh, really just people, word of mouth, yep. people who knew me. Uh, yep. And then literally Joe Barbera called, Chuck Jones sent me airplane tickets to come have uh, breakfast with him. What? Del Mar. Uh, oh my gosh. 
you know, I'm always uh, a protective over Princess Diana, but let's, let's say there was some contact from the royal palace is the best way that I'll put Aww. it, because the, the palace prefers a certain amount of discretion. Sure. Uh, Roy Disney contacted me. Wow. Uh, and, and I really did go for what I concerned to be like an $8,000 job to at least a $40,000 a year job. Wow. You know, for me, it was my rags to riches story. Sure. It allowed me to move out of there, and that's when somebody in Los Angeles heard about me and lured me to do her job for her in Los Angeles. Uh, all oh, that this is crap. before the, the yes. talk in the swanky restaurant. Yes, before this is what led to the talk in the swanky wow. restaurant. That's how that, this is that, now you've got all the information. I've got all the pieces. The narrative is complete. It all <laughs> fell into place. So, I mean, which projects have been the most interesting and maybe challenging to, to you? The hardest thing by far, well, the there's two. There's okay. the Tim Burton puppet project, which included uh, Nightmare Before Christmas, James and the Giant Are Peach. Are you puppets too? Uh, well, because they're painted plastics, and I, I oh. think I've never met a painted plastic media that I haven't uh, been able to tackle. Wow. Uh, I just got done doing one for Nickelodeon on SpongeBob because they did some work on a three-dimensional uh, piece of clay called Sculpey. Okay. So I worked on that. But for Tim... Uh, Warner Brothers brought me in to uh, deal with what was happening with the puppets from Corpse Bride because they were bleeding stigmata style, literally, from their foreheads and yeah, hands. Yeah, people often think that Corpse Bride is a Disney-produced uh, short, but it's not. It's not, and I got cooperation from the Disney studio in a major way uh, so I could go backwards to James and the Giant Peach and Nightmare Before Christmas. Uh, oh, and uh, look at those materials. One the, yeah, okay. one of the issues I had with Warner Brothers going into this is there's no textbook for this. I'm going to have to do what I did with the animation cells, which is start from scratch. This is mm -hmm. going to be a four-year project, probably. It's not... Actually, it was relatively inexpensive. It cost maybe $103 to fix those puppets per puppet because I came up with a great solution that could be applied, like, you know, oh. over the collection, and I got there early enough to do something about it. Uh, so Warner's was very nurturing of uh, the fact that this was above their skill set, and it was all on me. And the other time with them was Ground Zero. You know, given oh. what I do for a living, the last place I thought... IB is Ground Zero. You think that's 9-11, the Twin Towers? Uh, yeah, I worked on the artifacts that survived uh, Tower One. And my mother actually worked in Tower One for Port Authority, so there was a, a family... But not on that day. You know, my mom was a canary in the coal mine. The two okay. times in life that she was late to work were the time of the first bombing uh, and the 9-11 bombings. So she wasn't killed yeah, by it. Yeah, the first it. bombing was, what, 91 or something you like know, that? No, I still have a coffee mug from the first bombing where, like, it, like... The building's back, you know, come back to work, you know, yeah. happy first bombing. You know, <laughs> I still have the, the coffee mug for that thing. Oh my gosh. Because the Port Authority made like welcome back mugs. Uh, oh I think that was very early 90s. I, yeah. I'd have to actually Yeah, Google. I think, I feel like it's 91. I, I was like I senior say 91 in high school. Too. That sounds about right. Um, so, so what, so it's Tower One, so someone had a bunch of animation cells you in know, there? Oddly or? enough, in the retail store section that was underneath Tower One, the only store that, like, survived in any kind of way that could be considered, like, having artifacts worth saving was Warner Brothers. Oh, um, they had a Warner Brothers store It was there? a Warner Brothers store uh, underneath Tower One, I think by the R train. Um, wow. And Warner's knew that my mother worked there. Uh... So they felt there was like a homeboy connection, you know, mm -hmm. sending me back, and because it was all painted plastics. Um, and then I consulted on the, the beam uh, that had all the fireman stickers because those things were made of plastic elements also. 
Um, oh, what's the beam? You know, there's a big steel beam that was uh, propped up by the firemen. Oh, yeah, uh, the picture, okay. It, you that's know, and that's actually the, the centerpiece of uh, the Ground Zero Museum. Okay. Um, and I was there early enough And where so you restored the beam? No, I think Steve Weintraub asked me questions about what he might potentially be having to deal with as far as those plastic stickers, because the firemen and the police workers and the ambulance workers all put up kind of like medallion stickers for their different houses. Oh, and a lot of them, on the beam. Yes, or they oh, were okay. laminated uh, mass cards and things like that. So this was sort of almost a, I looked at it like a Rauschenberg, where this was a mixed media object made of steel, rust, okay. uh, <laughs> and, and plastic plastics. <laughs> and they had to all be preserved. So the adhesives oh, on the back of all the stickers had to be removed. And we use magnets, actually, as a way to uh, put those stickers back into place. Um, oh. That way there's no adhesive that dries out. Um, oh, perfect. It, it, given that I spend most of my time with Mickey Mouse or Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, I've spent most of my life with Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, the last place I ever anticipated being was at Ground Zero. You know, and it was a very yeah. emotionally difficult project. I bet. I remember being uh, in a cafe in Hoboken and I was okay the first day. The first day, it was just so large. I mean, physically large and emotionally large. But this, the second day, I was just in a cafe, and the waitress said, you know, can I help you? And I just burst into tears, you know, you know, because all, my head was just still recovering from the fact that I was literally by those dwarf... Uh, I was dwarfed physically by those twisted uh, steel pitchforks that used to hold up the sides of the building. Wow. Uh, ambulance trucks. There was one vehicle where... Uh, so the keys were still in the ignition and they needed to uh, move it, so they turned it on. There was still gas in the car. And accidentally they hit the, uh, uh, the windshield wiper switch and part of a human hand came flying up and out. So oh my God. I mean, this wasn't like, this was nothing like my normal work. You know, this, this. You this, were there right after. You know, you'd be surprised how long it took for the politics to play out. I was there probably about a year and a half after. And there was a hand, human hand still around? You know, no one had tested what was in the air. Like, I, me and Michelle Derrick are the ones that decided, I'm not really entering this space, nor do I want these artifacts to come back to California unless I know what this stuff is that's settled on them, because no one's bothered to answer that question. I think you remember all the material from seeing all the videos yeah. of exploding in the air. Yeah. Uh, at that time, people still thought it was alchemy, you know, that it was some kind of weird cocktail that was created because of the heat and the gasoline. And the reality was, it was everything that used to be inside that building. So yeah. we found shattered shards of glass, which probably is what is inside the policemen and the firemen's lungs. Okay. Um, we found a lot of steel. We found a lot of, you know, we found Prussian blue. It was surprising like, what we found. Everything but human remains, quite frankly. Mm. Uh, I think one of the interesting things that we found was that the fiberglass, for instance, was melded on the extreme sides as opposed to in the core. And I think that taught us that during moments of extreme and sudden heat, that uh, buildings do not unilaterally heat up, and that there are chunks of things that survive. There was this boulder that used to be seven stories of the building, and I remember being the one that found, uh, I would say, a human shoelace, a shoelace <laughs> dangling out of the crater. And I made a comment to somebody, has anyone bothered to x-ray this boulder because if it's a shoelace, there's probably a shoe. If there's a shoe, it's probably they're probably as part of a foot, you know. And it was really dealing with wow. things like that. That was, oh, you know. And I knew that that report, which was seventy or eighty pages long, was going to end up being 
the thing I'd be scrutinized for in my career as far as history is concerned. Oh, so you made a report on oh, everything you found? Absolutely. A and restored the um, no, Warner were, Brothers There were pieces. preservation guidelines, and for Warner Brothers, it was really, I, I would say, the best advice I could possibly give them on what to do, which was to leave it at the gravesite. You cannot possibly rule out human remains and to leave these things with wow. respect to where they belong. I went to New York... <laughs> But by the time I had got got there, it was just a big hole in the ground. You know, it was just, everything had been excavated. Well, when they finished they doing the excavating, where they brought them was uh, Kennedy Airport, and that's where they brought me, it was Hangar 17. Oh. So I'm part of the Hangar 17 team. Oh, wow. So I never made it to the pit. How long did that um, last? Oh, that went on years. Years that project. Why? And so did you relocate back to New York? or? No, I made, you know, when I went back to see my mom, because she she was still alive at the time, uh, I would like make trips to see Steve Weintraub and go out to Kennedy Airport and just sort of check on things. So I remember essentially triage, really. At first it was just piles Sounds of... Sounds like a mash unit. Yes, it was. <laughs> and it went from being a pile of stuff to an organized pile of stuff to rooms of... organized rooms of stuff um, to the Warner Brothers stuff sort of being isolated onto its own wow. section. so you're doing Warner Brothers and a bunch of other... all everything else. You know, I think, plastic. I, I think with, because what I do for a living that is so rare, yeah. uh, there's not a lot of people that do it, uh, so, and certainly not, I would say the one thing about doing this during twin bereavement is I, I probably put in three times the amount of work that most people would put in. Sure. So given that it's been almost 30 years, it's really almost like 90 years of experience because I've had no social life while, <laughs> while I've been doing this endeavor. Yeah. Um, you know, this isn't about Intensity. cake or parties or, uh, or company politics, it really actually is about work. Um, so I think at Ground Zero, they, and I've known Steve a little bit before that, okay. and he's also awesome to work with. Uh, he's great at problem solving and thinking, and he can see, he's one of these guys that can see the broad picture and the narrow picture at the exact same time, and come up with a unique solution that's tailored to the actual problem rather than something that's just going to get it done easy. Have you worked on any animation cells from your childhood, like, you know, cartoons that you grew up with that now you've I have had prepared? the best private exhibition of animation art anyone could possibly ever imagine. <laughs> I really have. And from, like, celebrities so large I can't say who they are. Sure. Uh, it's, it's amazing what has come in and out of this office during the last 25, 30 years. Um, I'm ever tickled about who calls. My one big regret was I was busy with Someone that had a huge impression of themselves as being famous that wasn't. Uh -huh. uh, I had to turn it. Happens to, a lot here in LA. It really does. <laughs> you, know, you know, I said who it was. The first thing you would say is who, and then their personal assistant was just a fucking nightmare to deal uh. with. I, I mean, someday she'll probably run a research library someplace. That kind of fucking nightmare. Oh um, gosh. Uh, but I had to turn down Francis Ford Coppola because I was oh. under contract to these other people, and I really regret that because I would have enjoyed having him on my list of celebrities. Sure. Uh, you know, his cell was actually anything simpler than this 10-character cell set up from Snow White and Seven Dwarfs from the end of the film. You know, it's funny, it's one of those things that only somebody like me would know, that when I worked on that scene where the prince picks up Snow White and puts her on the white horse and all the dwarves are dancing over to the right of the frame, the reason that thing is in the film for like a second and a half is it took me a year and four months and honestly, about six months being screamed at like a maniac by the personal assistant mm -hmm. involved with this project. Uh, but uh, it took me a year and four months to re reconstruct what was a twisted ball of garbage. 
to look like something like the end piece from this film. Wow. Uh, some of these things, because they're all cameoed, and the damage is all cameoed, that having to go in there with 10 times magnification, we're using a quadruple zero brush, not a double zero or triple, quadruple zero what, brush. It's like the tiniest pixel it's point. It's smaller than an eyelash. Oh my <laughs> God. Uh, you know, you, I literally cannot breathe. You and must I, have great eyes. You know, I, I, I'm unique. I think I'm like the Jimi Hendrix of this, where I actually use a 10 times jeweler's loop, uh, oh. holding it in one hand, squinting with one eye, uh, and and with the other hand going in and doing the repair. And every wow. time it's a little bit wrong, I'll remove it and put it down again and put it down again. And it's very punishing. I think sometimes on Facebook people wonder why I'm so terse or so uh, harsh or rigid. It's because I have to be all day long. Yeah. You know, when I had a cat, off. like I used to... Arrow just knew when to get out of this room. <laughs> that was my cat's name. Uh, you know, that if I was in one of my... God damn it. You know, and when you're working on something like a Snow White piece where, where the heads are smaller than a fingernail or a dime, yeah. uh, and there's nothing but eyes and nostrils and teeth and lips and ears all in that tiny little area, it is a lot. It's a very emotionally draining thing. I'm sure. I mean, just the intensity of focus. You see no progress sometimes. Like, even in a week, sometimes you see no progress. Sometimes you spend three, four days and all has to be redone. You know, and it's, wow. it's one of those things where I say, if I were billing for actually every hour that I, that I put into these pieces, I'd be a millionaire. You know, but because this is more a <laughs> bereavement thing. Uh, it's or a labor it, of love. Uh, or a labor of love, or, you know, a tribute. Uh, it ends up being kind of more uh, wanting to get it right. You know, yeah. Comandini always made this recommendation. You don't want to get it right. You want to get it perfect. Yes, I really, I don't uh, want it to come back. Yeah, and you want it to live on and... I want it to have a full... As long as it can. Yes, I mean, the full metaphor is I want it to have a life my twin sister didn't get to have. I Aww. want it to go on into adulthood and have a great big, long life. Well, let's see. Snow White, she is... Uh, she's old. She's <laughs> old. 1937. <laughs> so, what is Ron's L.A.? What is your Los Angeles? Do you have any L.A. rituals that you... I do. What are they? What are they? <laughs> you know, and it's funny. They're all based on trying to reconstruct what I enjoyed about my life in New York City. You know, so it's... Okay. An, I got very frustrated with the museums here because the curating at LACMA isn't what it could be all the time. And it's okay. very hit or miss with them. Sure. You know, I, I discovered, I think, sort of later... There is a Liechtenstein there, though. I know there is. <laughs> but the curating at the Gagosian in Beverly Hills is so spot on and so evocative at times, and so smart, that they could take someone as commercial as Richard Avedon and make him appear to be somehow the most nurturing, well thought out, and celebratory individual about women over the decades, mm -hmm. in ways that he really quite wasn't, but mm -hmm. the curating actually e is, e emotes that. And curating is a form of editing, right? You it's know? really a form of taking objects and using them to create a, nar a narrative. Okay. So in some ways it is editing because it's like less is more. Mm -hmm. You know, it can very much be less is more. The Diane Arbus show that included two Disney pieces was hilarious, mm -hmm. you know, because she's so disturbing. Mm -hmm. And she found a way <laughs> to make Disneyland disturbing by, I don't know, it's almost like a Wagner-like view of uh, the castle and the swan, yeah. her Disney photograph. And there was another one of the skulls from, I guess it must be the Peter Pan ride. Yeah. Uh, I don't even think it's Pirates of the Caribbean. I think she managed to find those skulls of the Peter Pan writing. The way they included that so that it would be about where we live, and I find that their sequencing at the Gagosian is brilliant, where they'll go from, 
you know what, we're going to have to be commercial. This is Los Angeles. They're really not the most fine art-minded community. Mm -hmm. So let's give them Richard Avedon. Let's give them Inez and Vindeau. And then, you know what, let's sneak in Robert Theron. Because they don't really, it's good for them, they don't know it, but we got them two times in a row, they're probably going to come a third time, so we're going to teach them to like... hiding your vegetables in your pillow. Yes, that's exactly (laughs) right. And they're very good at at doing that. Like I said, with LACMA, I kind of see there's a lot of interference or political stuff going on, Mm -hmm. so it's very hit or miss. And then there's that whole, we can't talk about it, you know, but I find there's no excuses at the Gagosian, it really is... And it's very well run. Oh my God, is yeah. it well run? Uh, and so, what is your ritual? Do you go there every week? Like what? Like every time there's a new exhibit, I'm usually down there. You're there. Are uh, you? So are you a, a member? Or? I'm not, but then, like I, I can't be incognito anymore. Like okay. when I started writing about their stuff on my Tumblr page, their head of publicity contacted me. That look, we looked you up. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're not just some guy with a Tumblr page. Yeah. You know, you need to check in with us before you do things. Uh, oh, uh, okay. So they caught me, basically. Uh, Pizzeria Moza is another one of my uh, haunts. Oh, what's that? Uh, it's it's a pizza place on Melrose and Highland that actually bothers to make the dough correctly, and they cook the sauce all the way through. Oh. Uh, you know, so pe- one more time slowly, what's the name of this place? Pizzeria Moza. Pizzeria Moza. It's Nancy Silverton's uh, kind of comeback, I guess I would call it, after selling the La Brea Bakery. Oh. You know, okay. she, uh, oh, wow. I don't know how much of her story is public. She lost uh, a lot of money. And I guess I'll leave it at that because I kind of respect her enough not to be too public about what uh-huh. happened. And she needed to reassert herself. So opening up that pizzeria and actually making the bread dough correctly. Yeah, I mean, which is everything. It's everything. My grandfather was a pizza maker and a bread baker. Yeah. And he lived with us. Anybody can put cheese and vegetables and meat on. Well, oh, I went in there really like like bitter and skeptical. Where it's like, all right, you know what? Let's what what can they not screw up? Let's get a sausage pizza. Yeah. You know, and I went there going, they're gonna screw this up. You just oh, watch. And I'm watching them prepare, and they put down uh, the cornmeal first. And I went, oh, they're gonna do the cornmeal thing, so they know that trick. And then I see that they're putting the olive oil down, but they're not letting it invade the crust. Uh, they're putting it down in the center. I went, no, this is the olive oil trick. You know, and then, <laughs> then I wow. see that they put the, the sauce in, and if they're not heavy-handed with the sauce mm-hmm. or the cheeses. Um, and I went, all right, fine, let's see what this thing is. So when I get it, I, I really want to hate it because so there's been so much bad pizza out here. Yeah. That I ended up now. If I don't go to Pizzeria Mozza, there's about seven or eight people who work there that like follow me on Instagram, and I hear from them about ah! you were at Black Hog. You had a bone marrow <laughs> burger at Black Hog, and you didn't come see us. And uh, you know what? Chef Eric Park is another one that I uh, I, I think Black Hog in Silver Lake is amazing. Okay. Uh, you know, I love that he's more. He's reminds me of me where he's sort of a malcontent, <laughs> you know, and he's always trying to improve his business, and it's still kind of a small business with a much bigger reputation, and I think it's based on the fact that he's always trying to push things to another level, or oh, this isn't working for me, I want to do this. Passion. Yes. Again, passion. Um, do, you, do you have any, like, uh, favorite events or festivals that you, like, have to check out? Paris Photo LA. You know, oh, uh, after all these contrived studio events that I've attended, I stumbled upon something at the Paramount Studios. Okay. And at first I went, oh, God, this is going to be another one of these over, uh, you know, with the food overproduced. is all, yeah, overproduced mm-hmm. food events with celebrities is going to be just mm-hmm. awful. Mm-hmm. And I walk in there, and my first thought is, it's very respectful. You know, the art is all in sound stages. And what they've done is they've taken the back lot 
And they actually manipulated it into being a functioning, living city, meaning essentially a movie set. Mm -hmm. And in their movie set, there's nothing artificial, there's no banners, uh, but they put bookstores that are actually bookstores from Tation or other Rizzoli, other big book publishers. And then they've taken galleries and they've literally put them in the gallery shops and they even opened Is up. Is this every year? They do it once a year and the first year was just breathtaking. It's like holy shit they managed wow. to make the people at the event go. part of a living I'm breathing sculpture. Paramount. I want to go. <laughs> you know and uh, you know it's gotten got the mad they did this one panel the first year with Max Weiner from uh, Mad Men and they had him talk to one of the Gagosian photographers um trying to remember the man's name because his thing is photographing backlots. That's what he does. And it was this wonderful fine art dialogue of somebody that's in Hollywood, meaning like in Paramount, like not that Mad Men is made at Paramount, but he still works in Hollywood, mm -hmm. talking to Gregory Crutzen, who, who is a revered fine art photographer. And I hadn't seen anything this sophisticated out here. Now normally the experience out here is that you can complain that Jesus, why is the Bergamon Station fine art so not all that good? You know, and they'll say, oh, how dare you piss on our baby? We love that place. And it's like, the curating isn't always where it could be. It's a little flea markety. Uh, it's certainly not Chelsea. Uh, you know, and you start to say, like, there are things with more gravitas to them. And everyone gets super <laughs> defensive. We must kill you because you don't like our home team. And it's like, no, the bread at the smokehouse is awful. It's not bread. It's akin to Pillsbury, like, crescent rolls. You know, I know this. My grandfather was a designated bread baker. You know, and it's like, no, we love that bread. And it's the same thing with the art. So when I do find places like the Gagosian or I find Paris Photo LA, I'm like the happiest guy in the world. Like, I'm like a dog where you just have to rub my belly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, are there uh, three things you can't live without in LA? You know what? That bone marrow burger <laughs> with the fries <laughs> at uh, Black Hog is one of them. Uh, <laughs> The Georgetown cupcakes are pretty damn remarkable. The, the, the breaded Figaro, particularly the Figaro bread on Vermont, and then because Nancy Silverton will hate me or the organization, I do love mozza. I, I would miss the squash blossoms if I wasn't there regularly oh, for them. I, I would miss their bone marrow blossoms. if I wasn't there regularly for that. Wow. Um, oh, man, I'm so hungry right their now. Their Bianca <laughs> pizza. Mm. Their white mm. pie is just amazing. Mm. Well, your LA sounds amazing. It tastes good. It tastes good. <laughs> Especially, and, uh, and I think I'll be it. smarter when I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Ron, for, for joining us today. Where can people find you if they want to know more about you? Uh, FoundInLosAngeles.com. Okay. Or AnimationArtConservation.com. And that's where people can find out more about the library that you're opening up. Yeah, I mean, right year. now, you know, it's funny. Somebody at the New York Times called me and said, why has your website been dormant for like four and a half years? And it's like... I needed to take an expectant pause. Sure, <laughs> sure. And I, you have a Tumblr? I do have a Tumblr. What Although, you know, my Instagram and Tumblr, I always say my Instagram is a sketch pad, and it really is the diary of like, hey, I had this burger, or hey, I went to the gym. Mm -hmm. You know, oh, and then I found this incredibly beautiful thing on the side of the road, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, well, I'm going to follow you. What is it? Uh, that, I just use my real name. It's Ron Barbagallo. Okay, easy enough. We'll Instagram. link up to that. Tumblr, I think, is Ron Barbagallo also. Okay, we'll link that up in the uh, postcast. So if you are interested in finding out more about all the amazing topics that we spoke about in this podcast or how to get in touch with Ron, uh, please go to onlyin.la, and I will be creating a postcast of all of the information we discussed in this podcast. And sign up for a newsletter. And when you sign up for a newsletter, 
I'll email everything to you so you don't have to do a damn thing. Just open your email and there all the links will be and we'll have photos from our discussion today and um, I highly encourage you. It's kind of like the full circle of this podcast, the visual element, Absolutely. if you will. But thank you, Ron. This has been an amazing conversation. I cannot wait to see... Um, what you do next with Found in LA? I I want to buy one of your pieces. I got to figure out how. And the next thing is going to be even more intellectual. I want to do I want to do a thoughtful installation the way Richard Prince does. Not appropriating the way Richard Prince does necessarily, but I want to do something that's more Bob Dylan like, something okay. that makes a statement. Uh, right it. now, it's all been about reconnection and, and connection uh-huh. uh, and maybe a little catharsis but I want to do something a little bit more conscious well I am uh, looking forward to and it and I'm very much looking forward to creating a research library in Los Angeles that actually is a research library yes <laughs> I can't wait to see your version it's going to be great well thanks so much um, and thank you guys for listening in and we will talk to you soon for this show has been provided by Veneer off their forthcoming sophomore album Chainspreader. Find them on Instagram at Veneer Music or on iTunes. You can contact us via email at onlyinlapodcast at gmail.com Listen and subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Libsyn, and SoundCloud and find us on our website at onlyin.la and please follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Podcast. Thanks again, you guys. See you next time. This podcast has been provided to you as a part of the SheTalks.LA network of podcasts. Podcasts by women for everyone. <laughs>